0: Thank you for listening to this teaching from The Prayer Room. For more teachings, notes, downloads, or to subscribe to our podcast as well as information about who we are and our upcoming events, visit our website at theprayeromdfw.com. The Book of Revelation, Session 13, Exhortations and Promises for the Churches. So uh, as we've been going through this study, the last uh, session or two and the next session or two are all about the uh, letters to the seven churches that are in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And so while we're going through the book of Revelation more theme by theme than we are verse by verse, we're also starting at the beginning of the book and picking out the themes and then keep going all the way through to the end of the Revelation. So it's, we're kind of going through the book of Revelation, but instead of doing it verse by verse, we're going theme by theme as we kind of go along, all right? So last session, last week, was an introduction to the seven churches. We were looking at these seven churches, and and we saw that they were real churches that really had, a, you know, historical uh, place in, uh, in real time and real space over uh, on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. We saw these churches... Uh, Uh, to be real and have these letters that were written to him, to have themes that were uh, developed even within the letters, that there was a a pattern of the way that the information was presented. Jesus wrote these seven letters. Uh, He had John uh, write them down for him. And each one of these letters followed a similar pattern. We saw that, the same pattern in introduction, and then of this, and then of this. We went through that last week, so hopefully that was helpful. This week, we're going to break down the exhortations that Jesus uses in these seven letters. And I want to use the word exhortation a little bit broader than say nice stuff. Uh, You can exhort a child to not run out into traffic. uh, And that is a good exhortation. Uh, So there's some exhortations that are encouragements. There's also some exhortations of some things that uh, are instructions about what to do and what not to do. And then next week, and, and we'll focus mostly on the good tonight. We're going to focus mostly on the positive things that Jesus is saying in these seven letters. Next week, we're going to go the total opposite. We're going to look at the warnings and the rebukes that Jesus gives these same seven churches. And so that's going to be our focus next week. So if you're wondering, hey, wait, we're breaking this up. What about the rebuke that's right in the middle of that passage? Don't worry. Come next week. You'll hear it. Next week will be really exciting. Get your, uh, get your buckle up. Okay. So um, here we go. Jumping in. Uh, Jesus introduces himself to these seven churches, and he uses individual language and an individual um, Uh, invitation or uh, or rather a title. He's addressing each one of these churches and he's calling himself something different to each church. We're going to look at that in depth here in just a minute. But I want you to know Jesus is giving himself this invitation to each of these churches. And just a couple of points here before we get too far involved, just as a little bit of an introduction. Um, The terms that Jesus is giving is intentional to draw them in. They're terms that they can relate to. They're ideas and concepts that are relatable to those people that Jesus is writing to that specific audience so that they would hear those words and kind of be drawn into the storyline a little bit even before Jesus gives any additional information. These uh, um, introductions, or rather these um, uh, titles that he gives, they're promises about his character. I mean, Jesus couldn't call himself something and be lying. Jesus couldn't say something of himself and it be untrue. Jesus giving these introductions to each one of these churches and calling himself something specific. They are promises about who he is and what those churches can expect of him. Promises of what those churches can know about his nature, lean into, believe to be reality, and then operate like it's true. They're, they're also that way for us. Also, this is Jesus inviting these churches to trust him. It's not just that he's saying these are aspects of my nature. But these are aspects that I want you to believe for. I want you to trust my leadership in these areas because if you will trust me in these things, I will see you through. And there's so many things in the word of God that the Lord invites us to trust to be real about him. And when we trust him, we're benefited. And when we don't trust those things about him, we're either not benefited or in some cases we're harmed because we didn't believe those things about him. If you don't believe that God is a father, there's going to be some negative ramifications in your life about that reality. And so when Jesus is making these, um, these introductions and he's saying things about his personality, he's giving us an invitation to trust him, and specifically these churches, an invitation to trust those aspects about him and to lean into those things and to believe them. The last thing I want to point out is these letters and, uh, and even the titles that he gives is Pastor Jesus giving very pastoral care. I love to think about Jesus as a pastor. You know, think about whatever, you know, if you've had some negative experiences in various church environments, I'm sorry for that. We probably all have. We've probably also all caused them, so don't point the finger at anybody. But uh, think about that one church, that one place, that one pastor that was like the best, they were like the best pastor. They were so kind and loving. They had the word of the Lord so often. They, they were tender in their care. They knew how to handle situations. They knew how to handle crisis. They knew how to handle themselves. They walked in truth. They were just a loving beacon of light. Just think, picture that person. And If you never had one of those, just imagine somebody off a TV show or something. I don't know. Just try to put your head space uh, in, in, a, in a good pastoral mode. Think of that person now. Relate that to Jesus being even better than that guy. Jesus being this phenomenal pastor that knows what to say, who knows your heart, who knows your problems and the solutions, and he knows the solutions perfectly. There's no guesswork for him. Like, perfectly pastoral. These letters are perfectly pastoral Jesus pastoring these churches. He's giving them instructions. He's, he's doing all the stuff that they need for them to be successful. You know, when Jesus rebukes you, it's because he likes you. Jesus gives rebukes and corrections because he cares about your excellence and your success. I mean, it's a terrible thing to watch a a meal spoil that you could have fixed the heat. You could have, you know, uh, withdrawn just a little bit of, you know, that extra ingredient or this or that. Jesus wants you to turn out perfectly. I mean, in the sense of you walking in your destiny, you accomplishing the things that the Lord wants for you, you being fulfilled in your heart. That's Jesus's desire. So even when he rebukes, his pastoral care and a rebuke is actually because he's after our excellence. He wants the best for us. And so Jesus in these letters, I'm telling you, he has got his pastoral hat turned around backwards and he is in game mode. He is ready to go. And so these seven letters are profound insights about how Jesus feels about people and churches and what he wants and what he likes. And I really, really like to read about Pastor Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3. Okay, well, now let's jump in here. If you're in the notes, we're on page 2. Details about each name. You know, I don't know about you. I, like, have a hard time. It's, like, difficult for me to stomach when I get a standardized letter in the mail. And it all says the same stuff, and then maybe the type is, you know, or the, the name is different up at the top, so they had some program that could just auto-populate my name out of a database. It kind of makes me want to throw up. Like, I'm like, I read that, and I'm like, I, don't, I am not reading this. In fact, I spend more internal energy as I'm throwing it away, thinking about how upset I am. I just got a standardized mail, and then I'm like, write me a letter, man. Write it to me. I don't want to read your, you know, clunker, whatever. You like, you wrote that to humanity. I don't want to read a letter to, you know, just, I want, I want it addressed to me. If you're going to write me a personal letter, now you know how to get it to me and have me actually have me read it. All right. Well, each one of these letters, Jesus, I think maybe had a little bit of that thought process in mind because he addresses the letters. He writes the letters uniquely. They are specific to that specific audience. It's not just like Jesus came up with seven nice things to say and then picked seven random churches and just, you know, drew them out of a hat and was like, nice thing number one goes to this church, nice thing number two goes to this one. He wrote specifically, intimately, directly to their unique circumstances, to their issues. I want to tell you one of the most profound, I mean, Jesus is so like parabolic and so wise and such a storyteller and he's able to weave things together in the most beautiful way, okay? Okay even in the terms he uses in his introductions, because remember I told you, he speaks of himself differently. He calls himself something different for every one of the seven churches. Even the phrases he uses are part of the solution to their problem. Even the phrases that he uses about himself are part of his ministry to that church. They are unique and specific, not just because Jesus needed seven different titles to call himself. Those titles are unique to their circumstances. This is so cool. This is like such a smart man. He really knows how to tell a story. All right, well, let's just look at that. And I'm going to go about as fast as I can on this part because I want us to get to the rest of it as well. But this is meaty. I just, I like this. All right, to Ephesus, Jesus says, to him, uh, from him who holds the seven stars in his hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is how Jesus speaks of himself. And he doesn't use that term for any of the others. He says, this is him, you know me, I'm the guy that holds the seven stars in my hand and I walk among the seven lampstands. Well, how does that relate to their circumstances? A little bit later in this letter, Jesus says, you have persevered, And you have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. I want to tell you that part of what's happening here is Jesus is describing himself as the one that walks in the midst of those who are going through incredible hardship. He's saying, I'm not far. I'm a friend that's closer than a brother. I am right there in the midst of you. I'm walking in the midst of your circumstances. You remember that day where the really bad thing happened? I was there walking amongst you. I am with you. That's powerful encouragement. I mean, so much discouragement happens because we just feel alone, isolated, and like nobody cares. Jesus is like, I am right up in your business. I am walking amongst the churches. In fact, I hold these seven stars. I hold them in my hands. Okay? To the church of Smyrna. It says, "To says, uh, from him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. This is Jesus speaking of himself to the church of Smyrna. All right? Revelation 2.10, just a little bit later in this same letter, we find out a little bit about their circumstances. It says, do not be afraid about, about what you are about to suffer. You will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life. These are the very themes that Jesus was just talking about in his name. He says it this way. Who, uh, from him who is the first and the last, he's saying to the, the church here in Smyrna, saying, listen, Before your hardship starts, during and after, I am. I am the first and the last. I am there all the way through. I know what's going to happen in this persecution that's about to happen to you. I know even before it starts and after it's over, I know the whole process. I am right there. I've got you. says, oh yeah, and by the way, don't forget, I too died and I rose to life. And this persecution that you're going to face Actually, many of you are going to be martyred, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life. This is Jesus uh, uh, able to emphasize, or, or uh, what's the word I'm looking there? Empathize. Empathize. I, think I couldn't even think of the word. Empathize with those that he's ministering to. He's saying, he's saying, listen, I know this persecution you're going to go through. I'm prophesying. I'm telling you ahead of time. How many times has that ever happened where the Lord, like, tells a church... Like your worst persecution ever is going to happen. It's going to start real soon. It's going to last this long. That's a really intense thing to tell a church. But if the Lord did tell that to an individual or to a church, how much strength does that give them? God told me this was coming. I'm going to be okay. He sees me all the way through it, not just at the beginning. He sees me at the end, but also, Jesus says... You need to be faithful even to the point of death. That's a little tip off. There's going to be a bunch of you that are going to die. Oh, but don't worry. Any of you that die, I want to remind you, I am the resurrection and the life. I rose again and I will raise you up. This is Jesus prophesying to those that are about to go through this persecution. I will give you life. Though you die because you hold the line for truth and righteousness in this upcoming persecution, I will raise you to life like I raised me to life. So powerful. All right, how about to Pergamum? Jesus tells the saints in Pergamum that he knows they live in the city of Satan. And he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. This is Jesus saying that he's got this sharp sword and he's going to use it and he's going to deal with Satan on their behalf. He's going to use that sword against Satan, but then he also tells them, that he will use that same sword against those in their midst that don't repent. He's here making the comparison between Satan and those who operate in Satan's ways, and he'll use his sword against either. He'll use his sword against both. Look what it says here. Repent, therefore, otherwise I, Jesus will soon come to you and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Them is those that don't repent. Those that are walking in the ways of that city, the city where Satan's throne is. This is so intense. So this is Jesus going, I got a big sword. And everybody goes, yeah, you're going to fight Satan. He goes, I'll also fight you. (laughs) Don't find yourself on the wrong side of this fight. I have a sword and I know how to use it. And the devil has got his tail between his legs and he's running, but you ought to be scared too. He says, repent or I will fight you. Oh, my gosh, that's so intense. What's he fighting with? He just got done talking about how he's got a double-edged sword. I'm sure he's just going to put that down and then he's going to box, right? No, he's talking about the sword in both cases. He says, I will fight against Satan. I will fight against anybody who doesn't walk according to my ways. I will come for you. Don't mess with me. That's so intense. All right, how about the next one? Thyatira. Jesus talks about him having blazing eyes. Look at uh, Revelation 2.18 here to Thyatira. The son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We learn a little bit more here. How does that relate to their circumstances? A little bit later in the chapter, uh, verses 20 through 25, Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, You who do not hold to her teaching, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. Jesus is addressing the church of Thyatira, describing his eyes like blazing fire because he's able to see perfectly and he's able to pierce. He's able to pierce and see perfectly those from two categories. Those who are faithfully standing with him and those who are in compromise, he sees them. He says, my eyes are blazing fire. I see you. I see those of you who are standing with me. There's a few of you in Thyatira who have not bowed the knee and have not walked according to Jezebel's ways. There's a few of you. I see you with my blazing eyes. All of you who have compromised, I see you with my blazing eyes. What about the burnished bronze? He says his legs. He makes a point. Who says this? Who walks up and says, I am one with burnished bronze legs. I mean, this is like, what do you, what does that even mean? And we know the picture, you know, from Revelation 4 and 5, we see Jesus in in the throne room. But here in this passage, this is Jesus introducing himself to the church. And he's saying, listen, I want to tell you, I'm also one with bronze legs. Think of a statue with those bronze legs. They're glowing just with their radiance. Those bronze legs are speaking of just such a foundation, immovable. This is the very thing that he says, I want you to be immovable. He says this, He says, those of you who do not hold to our teaching, I'm not going to impose on you any other burdens. You got one burden left. You just hold on to what you have until I come. You just stand firm, immovable. You be like my bronze legs that aren't going anywhere, that are foundational, that are standing strong. You stand against the enemy. I'm not going to put anything else on you. All you got to do is don't quit. You just stand firm, Thyatira. I see you, those of you who are in Jezebel's camp, but you've not given into her ways. I see you. How powerful to be seen by God. To Sardis, Jesus says to Sardis, him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, says this, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Okay, well, how do these two things relate? Jesus says, I'm holding you in my hands. Don't think I don't see perfectly. Don't think that I don't see the details of that which is being held in my hands. You have a reputation that is fluff. You have a reputation that is untrue, and I see it. I'm holding you in my hands. It's not like you're some, on some forgotten island somewhere. You're in my hand. I see you. You have a reputation. I want to tell you I'm the faithful witness. I will tell you what your real reputation is. You have a reputation for this and it's untrue for being alive. I want to define to you. I hold you in my hands. I care deeply about your destiny. I see that you're actually dead. I see you. You are close. I am holding you. I have found your deeds unfinished in my sight or in the sight of my God. That's That is not the reputation they have. They have this reputation that is so far from the reality and the truth. And Jesus says, you might be faking others out. I just want to tell you, I'm holding you in my hand and I see right through you. To Philadelphia. This is Jesus defining himself as him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open such an interesting way for Jesus to introduce himself, right? This is how he's talking about himself. He's saying, listen, there are those in your midst who are, who are walking that are, that are false and they are unholy Jews. Well, let me read this uh, next passage to you. It's also part of this chapter. This is uh, 3, 8 through 10. I have placed before you an open door. Now, he just got done telling him. He says, I'm the guy with the keys. He says, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut you've kept my word. I will make those who claim to be Jews, but they are not. I will make them come and fall down at your feet. I will make them acknowledge I've loved you because they have been saying, you're not real. You're not legitimate. You don't really know or love God. I'm going to make them stand in front of you and I'm going to tell them, I don't know you. I know and love them. I'm going to make them sit in front of you and deal with that. He says, listen, there's a group of unholy Jews that are operating not according to God's purposes. They're claiming to be Jews. They are not. He says, I'm going to make them stand before you, and I'm going to tell them the truth. I'm the faithful, holy, true witness. He says, I am the one who is holy and true. I'm going to get those Jews. I'm going to line them up, and I'm going to tell them I'm holy and true. I'm going to set the record straight. They say that you are not legitimate; that you're not, you don't really belong to God. I'm going to make them. I'm going to make them confess. I'm going to have them see with with reality that I love you, and I'm going to make them have that revelation that you're actually mine and that I love you. That is so intense. What about the keys? He also states that he holds the keys; that he is in charge, not their oppressors. It's a significant point. We. When you're talking about powerful government, powerful religious authority, powerful, you know, people in in places and positions, it's helpful to know that Jesus is the key holder, not them. And Jesus is making it clear, I'm in charge, not your oppressors. And he's telling them that when he opens a door, no one can shut it but him. And he's opening a door for them. And so this is Jesus introducing himself as the, the doorkeeper and as the one who gives true testimony. And he's going to come and address that falsehood and he's going to come and open that door for them. He says, I'm not just saying I'm a guy who has keys and I open doors and the doors I open are opened and they can't be shut and the ones I shut nobody can open. I'm not just announcing that as trivia for you that you can go, who's the Greek God or the real God that can open doors and no one can shut? Jesus saying, I'm telling you this. I am opening a door for you, and no one will mess with that door. And he's promising that to them. Laodicea. Jesus confronts the Laodicean church, and he calls himself the amen, the real deal, the finished word, the absolute. He calls himself the faithful one who is a perfect witness about righteousness and about truth. You're like, oh boy, duck, because you know what's coming next. Jesus addresses himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, oh yeah, don't forget, also the ruler over everything that's anything, the ruler over God's creation. He then tells them that he is the supreme ruler who acts out of his perfect wisdom, his perfect perspective, and that what he decides is definitive, it is trustworthy, it is done, and the Laocanian believers were operating in a very false view of themselves, And Jesus is telling them that his testimony about them is the right one. They have a testimony about themselves. He says, that's false. My testimony, I am the faithful witness. I am the amen. I'm coming. I'm defining your reality. He says, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that is not your case. Let me tell you your case. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. My testimony is the accurate testimony about you. Your testimony about you is wrong. So intense. Listen, I just got to tell you, we need to get to a place. Just This is just like a little pastoral nugget for all of us. We need to get to a place where we're so teachable. A lost person who hates you and hates God and has done every terrible thing can come up and give you criticism and you learn something from them. We are so defensive, we get mad when our brother in Christ that loves us tells us a flaw about ourselves, and we puff ourselves up and pretend that we're perfect. It is, it is total pride. It is the absolute best way to go to hell, to not listen to people when they criticize you. you just, I mean, it's a, you just don't like overly listen. Don't be like, I'm a terrible person. Don't get in a funk, but listen to what they're saying. And then go, God, go back to God later. What a great relationship we have with a God that never goes anywhere. Go back to God later and go, hey, they said this. How much of that is true? Instead of, they said this. Can you believe it, Jesus? He's like, oh, yeah, I believe it. I told him to say it. (laughs) Now, they put a little stank on it that I could have done without. I mean, they weren't real nice about it when they said it. But I did want them to bring that to your attention because you're not listening to anybody else. We need to be at a place where we can receive correction. So if you ever hear somebody come up to you and go, you're wretched, poor, blind, and naked. You go, Jesus, how much naked am I? Hell help me, God, with how poor and blind I am. Help me. Jesus exalts humility and he resists the proud. I want to tell you, he is currently resisting you in every area of your life that you are prideful. And me too. And I know he really likes me. But he will resist me in my pride. He will resist you. It is a wonderful thing when anybody, the Bible, a person, the Holy Spirit, an enemy, an a, a angry bumper sticker. <laughs> when anything confronts something about you and your weakness, that is a gift from God. We do not want to be those that shy away from that and can't be taught anything. Being unteachable is a is a absolute bane it's an apl- it's a plague in our society and this is a generation that does not want to hear that we could possibly be wrong about anything and we need to be told we are wrong and then go process that with Jesus with an open heart all right Jesus's praise for the churches i got to get going people all right Jesus praise for the churches page 4 i'm just going to read them you've persevered and you've so this is Ephesus so he writes some nice things to Ephesus These are the praises that he gives. You've persevered. You've endured hardship for my name. You've not grown weary. You have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. These are all really nice things that Jesus is saying to Ephesus. He says, Ephesus, boom, boom, boom. I like it. Keep that stuff up. Good job. Remember, next week he goes, but don't do this, this, and this, or I'm going to come and we're going to deal with that. All right, how about the Smyrna? I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. Oh, I really like this one. I just, I feel like I can relate sometimes to, to Smyrna because I'm like, I'm just so weak. I'm afflicted and poor. But I, I know I'm like rich. I know I'm pursuing God. I know, I know we're chasing the Lord. I know our little ministry is seeking Jesus. Such an encouragement. When you have a revelation of yourself, I'm just thinking about Smyrna and how they were afflicted and they were in poverty and they, they had difficulties. They were very keenly aware of those realities. And Jesus says, yes, but you are rich. I've watched how you've handled those things. Revelation 2, this is now Pergamum 2.13. Yeah, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Enipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Sometimes Jesus' biggest praise for us is just that we didn't quit. Look at this. He says, you remain true to my name. He just said, you just didn't give up on me. He said... You did not renounce your faith in me. Oh my goodness, you just know you're in like hard times when the nicest thing Jesus can say to you is, you didn't renounce me. (laughs) Like, oh man, these were hard days. This was a hard lesson or a hard year, Lord. This is Jesus saying, just don't quit, remain true. Even as you watch the martyrs around you, remain true. Thyatira, what is his praise for Thyatira? Much praise. These phrases are loaded Jesus is like, listen, I'm just going to have to give you guys a bunch of dreams later about how affectionate I am for you. Right now, I just got to rattle off about eight things and say it really quick because we got to get to some other stuff in this letter. And it's not fair for me to write you a really long one, write everybody else a short one. So I'm just going to have to power pack some phrases in here with a bunch of ands between them. Says, says, I want to praise you for your love and faith, your service and perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. I mean, Thyatira's, they are pressing. The Lord has got lots to say about Thyatira, kindnesses. And You listen, just as a point of like, you know, taking this away and making it personal, which isn't our primary objective in this study on Revelation, but it's definitely a great secondary objective all the time, all day long. Take these and go, Lord, how am I doing on these things? Like, would you say of me that I've persevered and that, that you, are, uh, you are marking my love and my faith? Is that something that you would like praise me about? Or is that something I'm kind of like, blue? You know, ask the Lord about my service and my perseverance. This is good stuff. Sardis, what does he say to Sardis? <clears throat> Not much. He mostly rebukes the snot out of Sardis. In fact, the nicest thing he says to Sardis is, well, you got a few people that aren't worthless. I mean, my goodness, this is, Jesus says, Yet you have a few who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. He says, in the midst of Sardis, there's so much compromise. I'm just elated that a few of you didn't give in and compromise with everybody else. That you're in a culture of full-on compromise. I mean, it's like, it's like Lot back in the day, you know? It's like Lot's in this town where everybody's compromised. I mean, just totally. And Lot had some issues of his own, but Lot was praised as the righteous guy that got saved in the town. I think this is actually a pretty good picture of what's happening here. Jesus is like, there's so much compromise in Sardis. I'm just excited I found 10 of you that haven't soiled yourselves. I'm just excited about those 10. And I'm going to reward them like crazy. He says, I have found them worthy because they've not given themselves over, but it's a few. Whatever a few is, we don't know. How big was the church? How many people? How, how many is a few out of that number? We don't know, but it's bad news for Sardis, okay? Yet Jesus does identify the few. I just want us also to recognize that. This is a God who understands the corporate realities that we're in, And he understands the difficulties, the pressures. He knows the church in China and the issues they face. And he's going to reward them according to their perseverance. He knows the lethargy and compromise of the church in America. And he knows the difficulties that we face. And he will reward us according to our faithfulness. The Lord sees into the very nuances of our circumstances. And he's even able to find that one guy that didn't compromise. That one girl. That one couple. That one family. I mean, God is a, is a God who has shown again and again he can go find the one family. Noah, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to wipe out 100% of humanity except you and your family. You're the one guy. I mean, this is a God who knows how to find the one. Just be the one and then surround yourself with the ones and raise up some ones and disciple some ones and let's change the tide of the church, amen? All right, Philadelphia, I know that you have little strength yet you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. You've kept my command to patiently endure. I love Philadelphia. I love this, this little strength. Stayed the course, stayed true. Held on to the commands of Jesus. Done the assignment that Jesus gave them. He says, I see it, little church. I see it. Philadelphia, I see what you've done, and I love it. I'm I'm so grateful. I know you've got little strength, but you didn't let that be an excuse to buckle. You held the line and then Laodicea is the only church Jesus doesn't say anything nice about. Not a word. It's noteworthy that there are such churches. It's in this and I don't know that this is an equation to use, but in this it's one out of 7. So it wouldn't be like, you know, every other or something. But there are churches that Jesus would look at and go just shut the doors, friends. Just shut the doors or repent actually, because that's what I really want. Jesus' entire message to Laodicea is actually not shut the doors. It's actually repent so I don't come and shut those doors. I don't want to shut the doors. I want you to repent. It's, we need this. We need to be repenters. You know, we need to be people that repent every day for 10 things and make it real so that it's not rote and religious. We want to be professional repenters. Because it's the best way to operate in the grace of God indefinitely. It's the best way to find yourself never more than one step off the path. Just be professional repenters. Have our relationship with Jesus be filled with I'm sorry that thought. I'm sorry I thought on it too long. Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me of that unrighteousness. Help me to press on. I'm sorry for the way I just thought about that person. I'm sorry for, oh, the things I'm still thinking about them right now while I'm repenting. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We want to be those that. That are repentant before the Lord because he loves humility and he stands against those that won't repent. And he promises to take stuff from the unrepentant, to take stuff. And there's nothing he couldn't take from the unrepentant. We want to be repentant people. All right, Jesus gives some counsel and instructions. Uh, to to most of the churches i think there's two that he doesn't give additional instruction now what i'm uh, pointing out here is in addition to praising them in addition to giving his names to those different churches there's uh for five of the seven churches he gives some additional instruction where he's telling them some stuff that they need to do or not do in addition to the warnings and the repentance stuff that we're going to talk about next week smyrna do not be afraid about what you're about to suffer this is instruction I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I'll give you the crown of life. He says to him, don't be afraid and be faithful. Those are great words. Pergamum was the other church that doesn't have anything uh, additional written about it. Thyatira. <clears throat> I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, so that, uh, to you who do not hold on to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets... I will not impose any other burden on you. Just hold on. Just hold on to what you have until I come. I'm coming. Hold on. Sardis, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Yuck. Is about to die out of the mouths of Jesus? That thing? It's it's a flickering little flame there, friends. You need to strengthen it because it's about to die. I'm telling you, if you don't strengthen it, the natural progression of events is death. Strengthen that thing. This is not Jesus of judgment and anger, this is Jesus of great kindness and concern. I don't want it to die. Strengthen it. Strengthen it. To the Church of Philadelphia. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. (coughs) This is Jesus again. Hold on so that no one will take your crown. Meaning someone's going to take your crown if you don't hold on. This is Jesus giving additional uh, encouragements and instructions to Laodicea. Laodicea, he gives some serious instructions. This is out of his love. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. I counsel you to buy from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness. I counsel you to buy from me salve to put on your eyes so that you can see here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and him with me church that I've got nothing kind to say to, nothing, so bad, if you'll just turn. I'm knocking at the door. I really want to eat with you, but I won't do it in your current state. I want that fellowship with you. That is so powerful. All right, part five, we're not going to look at tonight, but we're going to do a whole session on the greater uh, subject matter of part five here, Uh, in a few weeks when we do a session on the eternal rewards that are listed in the book of Revelation. Each one of these gives you one, uh, one line or two per church of Jesus giving promise of eternal rewards. The, the promises that he gives here, they're not just rewards in this age. In fact, most of them aren't in this age at all. Most of them are talking about if you do this and you overcome, I will give you incredible blessings in the age to come. And we'll spend a whole session talking about not just the rewards of Revelation 2 and 3, but the rewards that are given, the, the eternal rewards that are listed all throughout the book of Revelation. Okay, so with that, let's break up into groups. So let's see who we've got in our groups. We've got Jeremy over here and the final hurrah. We've got uh, Luke over here. Uh, Caitlin's right here. And then Andy, where are you going to be? Back here in the back? Okay, so those are going to be the four. How many in the groups tonight? Seven. Okay, so listen, we're going to break up into groups of seven. So if you would, rally around with those people. Hey, if you're one of the group leaders, stand up real quick and put your hand in the air just so they can see you and make that really abundantly obvious who you are. If you would gather seven around each one, if you've got nine people, you're doing something wrong. Chase off a couple of them and and send them someplace else. That way we don't wind up with too many in one group and too few in another. All right, they're going to lead a time of discussion, and then we'll come back for a time of Q&A at the end. Good grief. Okay. All right, two-part question with two sermon answers. (laughs) Okay, so the first question is, uh, Jesus is upset with Laodicea. He's rebuking him for being lukewarm. What does that mean? What is it that they're being lukewarm? What, identify what Jesus is uh, you know, calling lukewarm. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in my thinking and processing, and, and we actually talk about this in our uh, uh, teacher meeting. We have a group of teachers around here. We discussed this point a good bit here a couple weeks ago. You know, the greatest commandment If you fail at it, you failed everything. It's the greatest commandment. It's the one that's the most important. The greatest commandment, the one that matters the most, is love God with everything. And if you're bad at that, who cares what else you're good at? Like, you failed. Like, you're supposed to be good at the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. And if you're bad at it, then, like, recognize you're bad at it and go, oh, God, help, oh, God, help. I want to be great at this, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To be lukewarm... And Jesus is talking about their relationship to him. They were still doing ministry. They still had a measure of influence in the, in the region. They still had some things going on. Their responsiveness to him had grown, was growing cold. So uh, the, the concept of lukewarm is, the thought process is, it was fiery hot a minute ago. You take that thing out of the microwave and it's piping hot, but it's just left out on the counter for too long. And it's you kind of get the picture, even that the food's starting to mold a little bit. You know, what I mean, it's, that's the picture. And so, what's happening here in uh, in Laodicea is they are they have lost and are losing in a, a uh, an increasing level of loss, if you can say it that way, of their zeal for the Lord, of their uh, of their love for Jesus, of their purpose and life being rooted in God. And they're finding their identity in other things, their, their joy in other things. They're, they're lukewarm. They're, they're growing cold away from the Lord. And they're on a trajectory that's going to wind up, you know, uh, even worse and worse off. And Jesus said, I don't like the way you taste in my mouth right now. Like, I don't want to chew this. It's like day-old egg that's been left out on the counter. Like, it's kind of like room temperature plus a little. It's been in the sun. It's like, ah, blah. And she's like, that's how I feel right now about your spirituality. And I want you to know I am totally not okay with what you have just settled in. And she's like, ah, we're just kind of living par. You know, we're just kind of living a little bit for God. And she's like, I don't want anything to do with that version of Christianity. I'm about to spit it out of my mouth. So I, I would say that's uh, kind of a, an unpackaged or unpacked. What is this lukewarm thing that Jesus is rebuking? What is he talking about? Second question was, what do we do when we encounter believers or church environments or whatever that might fit that spiritual um, reality? Well, the first thing I'd say is first check your own heart um, because it's, it's going to be, uh, I just, I think there's so much zeal in 20-year-olds to call everybody else lukewarm. And lukewarm isn't being, or, or, or fiery doesn't mean loud or jumping in worship services fiery means wholehearted repentance and love and passion and yes a willingness to speak for him but a willingness to love him when nobody sees a, a willingness to to love him in in the ten thousand things that the bible commands us to do you know the tendency in our heart is to look at the one thing we're doing good and then to call everybody else who's not doing that one thing good despite what 25 things they're doing great they're lukewarm they're not doing the thing that i'm doing and it's like, man, that's, we have such a wrong perspective. There's so much finger pointing. Now, what we ought to be doing as brothers and sisters is you and I have got a relationship well enough that you can talk to me about the areas of weakness that you see in my life, and I can talk to you about yours. And we're actually encouraging one another forward to get better. And I'll just say this. It is a very difficult thing to receive a person who is coming to you and telling you how bad you are and not giving you any, uh, they've not given, uh, they've not built any relational rapport in your life to even receive you as a prophet. And so I think so much of what happens is just finger pointing, you know, rampantly, and it, it's not all that helpful. Instead, uh, we one, you can do this no matter who it is. You can pray for them, and I don't mean pray a token prayer for them right then once. I mean if you're identifying a systemic issue in a congregation or a significant uh, point of weakness in a person's life, love them enough to pray for it till it's fixed. Like labor for it. One of the things I love that we do around here that, I, that allows us to enter into this conversation, we are constantly praying for the one church to get healthier, stronger, better, smarter, more in love with Jesus, better at the greatest commandment, more repentant, more humility. And what it causes when you've prayed that, not three times, but hundreds of times, when you drive around Arlington, you see it different. You see that church that you've been praying for because it's part of the church. Even if you've not mentioned that congregation by name a hundred times, you've been praying for the church of this region of which that is one part of, and you know the rumors about that church. But your heart is different. Your heart is transformed. So I would say a significant thing that we need to be working on is praying for the church's health and maturity and not Uh, ragging on the areas of rampant weakness because my goodness with the measure you use it will be measured back to you and so i just say that as as a big component second is when you're in a situation whether with a friend or in a congregation that really does have some significant issues and weaknesses in addition to praying for it be committed to its solution and betterment just like jesus is committed to laodicea's betterment he doesn't say laodicea i'm so mad at you you're done cut off, burn you down. He says, I want you to be awesome. And I will find a way. To, I will give you the prescription for where you're at to, to the path of awesome. And I will help you get there. And I will walk with you. If, if you'll walk this way, if you'll repent, if you'll follow this counsel, he's looking for their good, not celebrating their condemnation. And so, uh, so it's just an important shift in our perspective. And we just, we are so quick to judge and tear down and there is so much that the Lord is doing in various people and lives and churches that we just may not be aware of because we see the, the blatant flaw that probably we have one of those two that they're over there talking about you. So I just, I just think we want to be careful how we talk about Jesus' bride. I mean, you talk about that man's wife, you just be real careful is all I'm saying. So... Yeah, that was about half as long as I thought I was going to go. Okay, so, um, all right, good. How about this group over here, Luke? Oh, come on, man. Oh, Luke threw me a softball. Okay, all right. Thanks, Luke. Okay, so, um, so the question is, uh, when we're reading through not just this part of Revelation, but all of Revelation, and really all of the Bible, there are times where the Lord on purpose uses phrases that are almost like intentionally confusing a little bit. They're they're intentionally different. He's he's drawing attention. He's not just using normal vernacular. He throws in symbols and and words and ideas that are not. Uh, in the context of the passage, if you just read it at a glance over, you're kind of like, oh, what in the world? Uh, The Bible interprets the Bible, which is our greatest gift. The Word of God is the best. And so when you're confused about a passage, just pull up Bible Gateway. I bless the Lord for Bible Gateway. And research that word, where else it is in the Bible, because most times it's somewhere else, or at least that theme is. And then by reading those passages, you can get first mention the first time it's mentioned in the bible will normally give you a good bit of context about what that's talking about plus even if it doesn't tell you all the story at least you learn more about that thing that you're trying to interpret over in revelation so go look up burnished bronze go look up eyes of fire go look up you know th- those kinds of concepts and and just see not even just eyes of fire but go look up other places where the lord's talking about eyes or the eyes of the lord the fire of the Lord. Well, now put those two things together. So the the Lord wants us to go on like divine bunny trails. I think his greatest desire is that he would be our heavenly source of entertainment and that the word of God would be there rich, rich for us to feast upon and never exalt, uh, uh, never uh, extinguish or, or or come to the end of uh, the value of the word of God. So Um, be intrigued write those things down when you read a term that you don't understand and make it a point of of study later on and don't go look out on the internet look on on this I mean look in the word to see what the word of God says first because there's so much that he wants to tell us about that it's okay Uh, Andy uh, let's get yours So, short version of the question is, uh, there are some that have called uh, this hour, by prophetic leading, uh, called this hour the Laodicean hour of the church. Uh, what, what can be said about that? Um, so, you know, I think that uh, all of the different churches, the lessons that are listed there, all of us could apply all of the lessons to our individual life, to our family, to our congregation, and to any time period in history. But I do think that there is a specific level of similarity that is um, uh, alarming to uh, the way that the church in the West is operating right now um, and what Jesus is defining as uh, the Church of Laodicea's significant issues. You know, the, uh, the missions movement the, that, you know, has been so profound in the earth Uh, you know, in the last, you know, couple hundred years since the first great awakening and and beyond, um, there have been, there's been more impact in the world coming out of America historically than probably any of the nations in history. But that is shifting. Uh, That is shifting to Asia and even China right now. And it's because there is such that fire, that torch is lit in, in other places because the gospel is real the The reality of Jesus is real. The nearness and the need for Jesus is real, and we live in a culture right now that is uh, shifting more and more, uh, just putting Jesus on a shelf. It, Jesus is a part of our culture, not the driving force. Uh, Jesus is a is a component. He's, uh, you know of of life in America. But he's not the the celebrated name on the lips of the children all over our culture, and even within our church, we've uh, if we're not careful, we find ourselves being that frog in the pot as the the water level or the water the heat of that uh, temperature is rising. That we're experiencing just such a uh, a a waywardness away from the ways of God, the things of God, and in an effort to be relevant, uh, there's so much within church culture that is embracing lukewarm life philosophy practice as normative i'll uh, just give you a great for instance when you read the example of the book of acts church they were always together studying the bible praying and fasting that was what you did if you were a saved person all the time and you snuck off to work got your work done and then couldn't get wait to get back to fast some more and to pray some more and do all night prayer meetings. And that was the culture of the church. We have adopted a version of Christianity that could not be further from that. Where the idea when we stand up here on Saturday night and we say, sign up for one two hour prayer meeting a week. Everybody goes, no, I'm too busy. Couldn't possibly pray with people two hours a week. And we've just, we've just accepted this as normal. We've to- and, and that's one of 20 examples. It's just one that hits close to home here. We live in a culture that is so bought into a lie of lethargic Christianity, being normative, and, and I think there's a lot that Jesus would have to say about how far we've fallen from true apostolic Christianity that we read about in the book of Acts, and that which was to be the model uh, for the church in this hour. And so, um, so I, I think that every church, every city, every place has got its issues, but my goodness... When I, uh, when I hear Brother Yun in China say that to believers in America that he's praying for us because he cannot believe how hard it is to be an American Christian because of all the compromise around us, while they're suffering persecution and the threat of martyrdom in places, there's an issue. <laughs> when you're hearing an apostolic leader in China under that persecution going, oh, we don't have it near as hard as you guys do. You're living in Babylon. Like we are so sorry that you live there. It's so hard to be a real Christian there. How do you do it? And we kind of all gulp and go, Maybe we're not really doing it. <laughs> okay, well, I will pray for you, brother. Yeah. All right. So Caitlin, your group's question. Our group had a question about church in Sardis. Jesus called himself the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Can you talk about what the seven spirits and the seven stars mean? Yeah, so worship team you can come on up. So uh, spirit Uh, Sorry, the seven spirits and the seven stars. So uh, one of the things that we're going to inevitably run into in this study is looking at things again and again uh, because they'll come up again. Uh, We spent uh, a good portion of a whole session talking about this specific uh, detail. Uh, So it was a previous session. I think it was session either one or two. Um, And uh, anyway, but I'll just give you the the short version. Uh, Jesus defines in Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse, I guess it's the last verse. So what would that be? Twenty. Yeah, verse twenty. He says, "The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand." He said it was a mystery. You saw seven stars. It's a mystery. Now I'm going to tell you what the mystery is. A great um, a biblical principle. The Bible interprets itself. There's very little in the Bible that isn't also interpreted in the Bible elsewhere. I mean, that's that's the kindness of the Lord. However, the Lord doesn't want to make it easy all the time because He wants us to know our Bibles. He wants us to search. He wants us to go after it like it's hidden treasure. And if we'll go after it like it's hidden treasure, you will get revelation that was always there. It's not like it's a new Bible verse, but it does require some searching out. He says, so the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are angels of the seven churches. You got seven churches. Each church has an angel and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And part of the picture there is churches are supposed to be a light in the world. City on a hill, cannot be hidden, kind of a concept. These churches are supposed to be lampstands. So imagine uh, imagine the world without electricity, it's all totally dark. From outer space, you're looking down, you know, on the on the ball, and all of a sudden all the churches become a lampstand in every place that they are. That's what's supposed to be happening: beacons, light, hope, truth. So he's calling these seven churches. He's saying there's seven lampstands that I'm walking amongst but they're, uh, they're to be lights uh, in the world. So great question. And again, there's way more on that in a previous session that somebody might uh, in your group be able to help you point back to uh, which session that was so that you can go read those notes if you like or listen to the t- This concludes this teaching from The Prayer Room. For more resources or to schedule another TPR teacher to come speak at your church or event, please see our website at theprayeroomdfw.com. Thank you.